HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining me today from London is prolific food writer Sybil Kapoor. Her most recent book, Sight, Smell, Touch, Taste, Sound, which builds on taste, which was published 16 years ago, presents cooking as a sensory practice, one that does not require great skill, knowledge, or willingness to follow a great recipe, only a willingness to engage and think critically with all five of our senses. Welcome to the show, Sybil. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. So this type of cooking, cooking by instinct, observation senses, was kind of, again, recently popularized by Samino Strat's salt, fat, acid, heat. But you've been writing about it for much, much longer. So can you talk about how you developed that approach to cooking and how it has evolved um, with food trends, without food trends, etc.? Absolutely. Um, well, the first thing to say is actually I was a chef for about 13 years. And um, I think most chefs, when they cook, actually do obviously use all their senses. You do need them for cooking. and uh, But you don't sort of think about it logically. You just do it instinctively. So you want to create a new recipe, you just feel it almost. And they don't sort of uh, uh, spell it out to themselves. It's just a thing that you do. And in 1991, I was uh, invited to start writing for a food magazine called Taste. And I had to sort of translate sort of my ideas and thinking that I had as a chef into actual recipes and articles and things like that. And I think that it really began then and initially based on my original work as a chef. 
And as a chef, I had very much uh, been trying to develop a sort of modern British food movement in the UK. And uh, that drew on my childhood memories of growing up in rural England. And that is to do with the smells and seasonality and ingredients like that. And gradually, the more I wrote, the more I realized that, you know, there were more things coming into play. And each person I've ever asked writes in a different way, but I'm quite analytical. And I started always with either the taste or the flavor, and these two things are very different. The flavor is what you smell, but people often think of this as taste, and taste is just five things. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, <clears throat> and umami. And so as that developed, uh, you know, this idea that there were these things, I, I sort of realized that taste would be a great way to sort of highlight these things to people, and that's why I wrote Taste, as you said, a long time ago in 2003. And the natural follow-on to that was actually to talk about flavor. And I did that in... Um, <clears throat> quite, I'm quite a slow writer, actually. I do lots of journalism, but books I tend to take much longer to do. So that was in 2008. I did a book called Citrus and Spice, A Year of Flavor. And that was exploring that. And then gradually I sort of went on to do other types of books and things like that, but all the time developing my ideas about senses and how they might work. And my husband sort of basically said, he's a neurologist, and he sort of said, for God's sake, you know, you've got to write your theory down. And in a nice way. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how it started. And so basically this book is the culmination basically of years of thinking. But spelling it out, I think in a different way from uh, Salim Nazareth, in the sense that it's, it's really about loving life. It's about enjoying your experience and drawing all that in through really experiencing your five senses and how they work in relation to how you can cook. Mm -hmm. And so for those unfamiliar who have not um, had the great luck or fortune of picking up your book, can you kind of explain what the thesis is and how someone might approach your book? Well, the first thing, is, I want them not to think of it as a sort of, my God, this is a, a, a sort of difficult, complicated book. It's really easy, and you could just buy it and use it as a recipe book. But in the way I want them to approach it is to have fun and really enjoy it. And the thesis behind it is that what makes a dish really delicious, you know? And so, I re obviously, we all cook in different ways. You know, we come from different backgrounds and cultures and religions. And, but we all have the same sight, smell, touch, taste, sound. So why is our taste so different? And what is it that makes things really delicious? And so I thought, well, the best way to sort of divide this building blocks in cooking, those senses, was to divide it into taste, flavor, texture, temperature, which includes all the touch because it's, it's you, know, uh, you know, it's all about feeling. And appearance, which is how we actually look at food. And people obviously think you should start with appearance. But actually, from a cook's perspective, I think you need to start with the taste. And if I, ideally, I'd, I'd love people to start at page one and gently work their way through the book. And a lot of the recipes are really, really easy. Well, all of them are really pretty easy. But they sort of refer to one another. And as you go in, you suddenly start to understand how much texture can influence your perception of how something tastes or how it's being released in your mouth to give you much more flavor. So if something's really chewy, like a toffee, you're going to go on tasting that toffee and smelling the sort of caramelly notes in your nose as you're eating. So it's very different from if you were just to have something that, like a toffee ice cream which melted quite quickly and was just gone. 
Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. It just made me think of um, in Asian cuisines, um, the kind of chewy texture is really prized as well. And I wonder if that is a reason why. It's you're constantly retasting and retasting the dish as it kind of, I guess, breaks down in your mouth. That's exactly what it is. You are constantly tasting. And the other interesting thing is that if you have different types of chewy textures in your mouth, you will be releasing them in uh, at different speeds and in different combinations. Hmm. And one of the fascinating things about that is, because what I found as I got into the book, each chapter could have been a whole book, but there were so many different things that I hadn't really thought of. So, for example, you know, uh, if you're talking about texture, how do you eat the food? So if you're eating Chinese-style or Japanese-style with chopsticks, you're having small individual things in your mouth, so you're having less combinations unless you were to stuff it all in very quickly. <laughs> but on a, in an in a, in a English home, say you're eating with a fork, you would have to smudge things on your fork, so you do a combination, so, I don't know, roast potato, roast meat and gravy, and if you're really greedy, some peas or something. And that will all go in at once and be chewed together, so you have different textures being released as you're chewing that. But if you're Indian, again, you tend to have things that you eat with your hands that you squidge together, they're much softer, but you're getting all the influences of the feeling from your hand of what you're picking up and how soft or chewy it is and then putting it in your mouth. So there are so many different aspects that I found really, really fascinating that I hadn't really thought about before I started writing the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of want to backtrack a bit. Um, the first thing you said was that you kind of noticed that everyone has the capacity for these five senses, um, salty, sweet, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But um, did you ever get any feedback where someone's perception of salt is different than yours or maybe they um, are incredibly sensitive to bitter um, foods and that other people's are not and so their approach or their use the way they use your book is much different than others I haven't had uh, I haven't had individuals sort of coming up to me and saying that people are quite strange in Britain they, <laughs> they might say it to somebody else but they won't say it to you the author but, um, but what is true is that um, in terms of taste, and it's very important to understand that taste is literally just water-bound foods, and so they are only these five things. You've got, i.e., the sweet, salty, bitter, umami, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, sour. And you get, uh, most people, like 50% of us, are average in terms of we, we all taste things in a fairly similar way. But you will get super tasters, who are about 25%, I think it is roughly, who will be really, really acutely sensitive to, say, bitterness. And I have a feeling it's actually for all the tastes, but certainly for bitterness. And so they will find things much more difficult. They'll have to amend the bitter elements, or they won't eat bitter foods. Similarly, you'll get another 25%, which will have a much lower sensitivity to taste, and they simply don't taste things as much. Um, which is quite fascinating, you know, you, presumably you pick up on other things. And there's a very small group of people who, for one reason or another, have unfortunately lost their sense of taste. Mm-hmm. And that's just a clinical problem. But the other fascinating thing which does happen is that, particularly in relation to sweetness and saltiness, which is if you have a very salty diet, or if you have a very heavily sweetened diet, and this can be cultural because when I went and lived in the States for a year or so, uh, I, I discovered that your puddings, for example, are much sweeter than ours are. This is a higher sort of level. And by the time I left 
the States and came back to England, I found that the puddings here were too, not sweet enough. Hmm. And you, the more salt or sweet you have in your diet, the less you can taste it, so the more you want. And that's why chefs often quite heavily salt things and think the salt is a good thing. But it's a very interesting exercise, which I actually did with taste, which is you cut it right back. It's quite painful initially because it's like everything seems really bland. But then you start to taste all the other tastes, and it's really exciting. And you actually need far less. And so it does change your perspective. So obviously if somebody was cooking and they, they're particularly having one thing, they might find it undersorted or oversweetened or whatever, depending on how they cook mm. before they started doing the book. Yeah, so let's actually talk about some of these tests. Um, that This was something that really surprised me and really delighted me when I picked up the book, which was there's not only um, your theory and these recipes, but also kind of sidebar tests where it's like try it you know, with your eyes closed or something like that. So can you talk mm. about um, how you developed these tests, um, whether it was a gradual process and if, yeah, how you intend people to try them out? Yeah, it was a gradual process. Um, I... I, I, I think that, especially when you're talking about ideas that are quite new to people, you know, they, they may sort of instinctively do them, but they may not actually understand how or why. It's very, the best way to learn is from experience. And every cook knows this, you know, somebody can tell you how to make something, but until you've made it, you don't really understand. Uh, it's just, you know, it's funny. So I felt that in relation to this, it was very important to give people practical experience, and then they'd know, and then they just remember, you know, you don't forget. So I, I divided the tests into two sorts. sorts. There were those that went with the notes to, or whatever, just to explain something very simple. So I was talking to you about taste and flavor and the difference. Now, you know, I can say one's waterbound, one's airbound. What does that really mean? So I give people a little test, which is to take a bay leaf and crush it and sniff it. And they will immediately smell that very familiar bay leaf smell, which goes into stews and, you know, all sorts of gorgeous things. And they say, oh, yeah, that, you know, and they'll probably think that's the taste. But it's not. It's the flavor. That's what is airborne. Then I get them to bite, not too much, <laughs> of a bay leaf. And it's really, really bitter. It's very nasty. And, and that's the taste. That's what you get from the waterman. Of course, we don't eat the bay leaves. We just use it as a flavoring. So that's one type of test. And immediately it starts to explain the difference between taste and flavor. And then another one will be more... And a, a, a good example of that, also another one, would be like umami, which is sometimes a bit difficult for people to say it's savory, and some people don't really understand what you mean. So I say, you know, take pasta, spaghetti or whatever, toss it with a little bit of butter, and eat a little bit like that, you know, seasoned. But, and then try some with parmesan, and the parmesan is very strong in umami. That will immediately make you understand the difference between umami and non-umami, basically. Mm-hmm. And so with a taste test, say, for actually with the recipes, um, I sort of, as I was writing them, I suddenly think, oh, God, this really is a good illustration. If you did this and this, it would suddenly make you understand what I'm talking about. So there's a recipe for gluevine, which is under, I think it's in temp- temperature, I can't remember, actually, because they all cross over in terms of... Um, and I asked the cook, you know, when, you, when you're heating it up, you've got this lovely spicy one, it's absolutely delicious. But I say, just fast cool a little bit over ice, a tiny bit, for yourself to try. And it's actually really quite unpleasant. It's, well, not, you know, it's, it's sort of very much sweeter, and it's almost granular. You can almost sort of taste the spiciness. It's weird. And it's not nice. So immediately you start to understand why you need that to be hot and, and what's happening to you. You know, it's a very quick release of flavor. You're not picking up, because the cooler something is, the more you, not cold, cold, but 
peppered, you know, the more flavours and tastes you have. Mm-hmm. So, again, it, it, it explained it immediately. And I also like to do comparisons. So, like tapioca, which I think a lot of people find difficult. I certainly used to. I did two types of tapioca. So one was in pe- pureed peach, which has a sort of non-fat texture. You get this jelly thing. And then one which is co- in coconut milk or cream, you know, which is really rich and unctuous. So, so that you can you can you can do different things compare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been talking a bit or a lot about um, kind of these scientific definitions of taste and flavor. But how about the more figurative understandings of taste? Um, what are some unique elements that kind of change how we taste? And um, I'm talking about like biologically, culturally, socially, and if those are kind of changeable or not. Virtually everything is changeable, um, and I think that, and that's the fun, actually. Um, first, uh, I think you're talking about sort of the emotional side of you, like memories and things like that. Mm-hmm. Are you? Is that what you mean? Yes. So, so, for example, so most people have good and bad associations with food, and, um, and so how do you heighten that? You know, not, not the bad, but the good. <laughs> so, so, for example, one of the things I want people to do is really be aware of their surroundings so you know when you're walking down the road see what it smells like so i live in london and on a winter autumn night like now if i'm walking along there'll be a slightly smoky smell from wood burning pizzas you know in pizza ovens and things like that there'll be indian takeaways there might be sort of car fumes or there might be just you know if i'm passing sort of greenery there'll be sort of that damp leafy smell there are lots of different smells and all those smells evoke a certain feeling of me, a sort of wintry feeling in me, which I can translate into my cooking if I wanted to. So, so you know, if I use smoked paprika and black beans and things like that into some sort of, sort of stew, stewy type thing, you know, that would make me feel warm and autumnal. But I'm actually translating the sort of smells that are outside into my food. Um, so there's things like that. So you can... It, it, it's about being aware of what's around you. So if you can bring that into you and also think about who you are, what do you really love, what makes you feel good. So if you like, you know, apple and cinnamon baked in a pie and that makes you feel good, then bake it, you know, do it. And, and then think, well, you know, is there something else that also brings that, you know, would plums and cinnamon be nice? Would that be nice in a tart to turn or other things? So you're sort of bringing up different elements. To bring. So there's that sort of thing. In terms of, uh, was it cultural? What was it? You said there was another element yeah, you wanted. Yeah, culturally and socially and biologically as well. So bio- biologically, um, we're born with our tastes. Everybody has tastes. And as we've talked a bit about, and children uh, sort of have an antipathy to bitterness. And you, so like you like milk chocolate, not dark chocolate when you're little usually, and then you gradually, you know, go into dark chocolate and you start liking coffee or tea as you grow up. Um, so you do bring those, but flavour—you don't—you're you, not born with uh, flavour buds, you know, the, the pre-programmed like bitterness of, of, of taste. So everything you smell will change how you feel, and that's all to do with your emotional. With textures and things, I think it's fascinating because, um, our, you know, again, it's very, very cultural. So you were saying, you know, you like chewy things. Like the Japanese love what in Britain will be described as slimy food mm. <laughs> in the nicest possible way. And so I, I, would go, I went to Japan and initially, you know, of course, I've traveled there quite a lot. 
And I found initially, like, the savoury custards and things like that, and sort of simmered uh, beef tendon and things like that, really quite hard to eat. Because because I was down, I had to be polite. I had to eat it. Well, you know, I felt I ought to. So, but it was really problematic for me because it's not a a texture we really like very much here. But as you gradually expose yourself, you get to like it. And now I really enjoy it. So there is is a, a reason to... Gently push yourself into things you don't necessarily like eating, um, like squeaky Thai salads or something, you know. And, you know, just seeing if you can push the boundaries, because that will actually enrich your cooking ultimately. And the same is with the sort of cultural things. So, um, for example, talking about different cultures, so in Britain, you know, we all live in freezing cold homes in the country. When we're, and so we like really hot food. And when I first started meeting my husband's family who are Indian, um, they would sort of put the food on the table, it's all served together, and you eat everything together. And, um, but it would gradually go on the table, so by the time we sat down to eat, it would be slightly tepid, really. <laughs> I found this very difficult initially, but now I realise actually that, you know, if you just chill out, it's actually really, you get a lot of flavour, and, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of different ways that you can sort of, if you start to mix and match and really push your boundaries that you can find it into other cultures and other traditions. You will really enrich your own cooking a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really kind of beautiful idea that you can kind of pull in all your experiences from your surroundings um, and kind of construct your own new endlessly adaptable culinary identity and preferences and I think um, my difficulty with this might be because it's an American thing but I feel like we all have such pride in our individual tastes and that we're always original and unique and I've come up with this on my own and um, do you think there is such thing as being original in our tastes or is it are we all purely kind of products of our environment? Ooh, it's a really difficult question. Um... I think we are all individual, actually. I really do, because everybody does something slightly differently. I mean, it's like wearing clothes. Nobody looks quite the same, do they? I mean, it's always everybody does something slightly different, differently. So it's very much an expression of who you are. And so, so for example, I'm a messy... I, I, it took me years to accept that I was a messy cook. And I, when I learned to cook, it was the time of Nouvelle Cuisine. I'm, I'm 61 now. And, um, you know, and I really struggled in restaurants because I couldn't make, you know exquisite, perfect little, this little twiddles and things on the plate. <laughs> and actually, the revelation for me was I came and uh, worked at Jonathan Waxman's restaurant, Jams, and um, and there it was all, you had to pile it really high, you know, the vegetables or the fries, and, you know, it was much more loose. It was beautiful, I mean, it was very beautiful, but it wasn't, and obviously your plate rim had to be clean and everything, but it wasn't that finickety sort of look that was still in Europe. And, and I suddenly realized, well, if I just accept that I'm a messy cook and adapt my cooking to that, I can, you know, go with the flow. And so, but if I cook something, it's never going to be the same as somebody else who's, you know, say, even if they cooked one of my recipes, it's never going to taste quite the same because they'll just have that, well, actually, I'd like to cut these a bit bigger or, oh, I haven't got that, so I'm going to put this in, I prefer that and... You know, and that's great. I mean, that's how it should be. So I think there is individuality there. Maybe not as much as people think. And I think the older you get, the less, <laughs> the, the harder it is to find individual things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can say that I think I created X, but actually probably somebody else did somewhere else, <laughs> coincidentally. <Right. you> know. <laughs> and I've certainly seen mine 
my some things I've done in other people's books, you know, and you think, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is all that, but obviously we all think we are. I hope we all are slightly unique. I think so. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on -on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And we're back. I was just speaking with Sybil Kapoor about how we eat. It kind of acts as an expression of who we are in, in the same way that even if, you know, two people wear the same item of clothing, the way we wear them is can be much different. And so, um, Sybil, on that, um, what would you define as bad food versus good food? Um. So are we, are we, when you mean bad food, good food, do you mean in terms of uh, whether something's organic and such, mm. or do you mean just bad taste? <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. I, th- I think okay. maybe I should reframe um, how bad food is determined and how good food is determined and um, how those definitions kind of reflect our culinary expression as well. Right, so it, it's a very difficult thing, this. I think that... Um, so, uh, Basically, my belief, you know, the best type of food, good food, in my view, is food that is very uh, sustainable to the planet. And to me, that means organic. It means natural as far as is possible. Um, And by natural, I mean being homemade, basically, so that if you make something, you know exactly what the ingredients are. Um, And locally produced, where possible, seasonal. There are lots of things, and all of the things, that is my definition of good food is to do with what's around in your environment. But I have to be careful with that because there is also the whole issue of not being judgmental in the sense that 
there are many people who cannot afford, often this food is more expensive, so there are many who can't necessarily afford that, either in terms of cost or in terms of time. So if you're working, you know, really hard on things and you don't have time to cook or whatever, it, you know, life is much harder in that sense and you can't necessarily conform to what I would consider to be the ultimate good food. But that doesn't mean that you, you know, you're eating badly. So it, it, it's, a, it, it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate thing. In an ideal world, I would want everybody to be able to have access to fresh produce that they can, that they know has been produced in a sustainable way. Um, and I think that if you are able to eat more home cooked food or food that you know how it's been produced, uh, you know, even, even if it's cooked for you, it's done in a healthy way. So it's not heavy and sort of difficult things that might be bad for you in large quantities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, the, the power of rhetoric is something that comes up on the show a lot. And exactly as you mentioned, I'm kind of pitting organic versus not as good versus evil um, comes up a lot, but I also um, want to get your take on the kind of the cultural slant, which is, um, I'm I'm thinking of the conversation surrounding MSG and how that was kind of used to perpetuate or to act as a kind of xenophobia. Um, And so how, how do you think? I'm fascinated by this idea that it's xenophobic. So MSG is something that, you know, there's there's a great deal of debate about, Um, certainly in the UK. It's not, it's not so much aimed at, say, Asian food, but actually at the idea that, uh, you know, this would be, MSG would be a great way of creating tasty food for, say, elderly people and such, such like, you know, because they, they lose some of their taste buds as they grow old. So why don't we add this and make it more tasty for them? Now, I have a problem with MSG. And let me say, I absolutely adore Chinese food. And the reason I discovered I was allergic to it was the fact that I actually used to go and eat so much. Uh, I used to have every Sunday dim sum. And I realized, look at my diary, that I used to get a terrible migraine after the, <laughs> after the dim sum every week. And, uh, and, then I started, I, and then I then started looking at what else I was getting migraines from and realized that my stock cubes had it, you know, things like mm. that. So I now make more money in stock. So it, it was never, I think for a lot of people, I don't think it is necessarily xenophobic. I think it's just that it, it affects people. Now, there is... You know, there's various papers and people say, oh, you know, there's no evidence that it really creates any problems. But actually, in reality, what it is is that when you're doing trials and such like, if there's a very small number of people that have a reaction to something, they won't necessarily be registered on the trial, but they are still getting the reaction. So, and I know that my reaction is genuine because I would love to, you know, just go and eat Chinese food or... Thai food, or, and I don't know if Thai food has it or not, but I mean, for me, it's actually traveling anywhere, like in the, in the Middle East, for example, large numbers of food actually does contain some form of MSG. So it, it's a, that to me is a very difficult thing. I would ban MSG, to be honest, because I find, because it's, it's, I think it's a way of preventing people from just cooking naturally and better than mm. they might if they use it. But I also know that people love uh, all sorts of snacks and things that contain MSG, and I can understand why I used to love them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, you know, so things like that. I, I don't see it as a cultural thing. It was, you know, in fact, it was take, MSG was actually, this, although it was, it was discovered in Japan, the I think it was the American Army took it over to the States 
realizing that it would be a great way to make army food tasty uh, during, you know, just after the war, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So, well, no, before the war, it must have been, because it was uh, quite a long time ago. So, um, things like that, I'm sort of a bit confused about. I think that, uh, so... Does that answer the question? Or yeah, yeah. I think you you are unique in that you are willing to do the digging to figure out why exactly you got the migraines instead of just kind of um, associating those symptoms with a cuisine as a whole, you know? Well, it's, it's, it is completely widespread in food now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, 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 it's incredible. And of course, it, it's very interesting because I've traveled widely around China and it, it was quite a problem for us. <laughs> to go in and get the chef not to use it, it was just really difficult. But I have eaten totally, like there's a wonderful chef called Andrew Wong in London who does beautiful food and he doesn't use any. And it is delicious. And so I sort of feel that, I feel it's a bit like using too much salt. I sort of feel if people tried it without it, they find that actually it's really, really good. Why do they need it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so let's pivot a bit. Um, instead of going hyper-specific cuisine, um, what are some of the defining characteristics of our modern-day globalized cuisine which feels encompassing of all cultures and cuisines at once, but also kind of hard to tie to one cuisine as well? I, I think, if I understand, you know, what you're asking correctly, um, there, there are several things. I think that, again, sustainability is one of the key things that's coming through. Uh, vegeta- vege- being vegetarian or, and vegan, veganism are both uh, sort of very strong. Um, being more natural, as in being in tune with the seasons, feeling in touch with things around you, organic foods, fermented foods, all of these, are, I think, are, are, are crossing different cuisines. And again, it's interesting because I think actually, certainly in the UK, the fascination with fermentation actually, I think, sort of started partly from Korean kimchi and things like that, which is quite new, much more new here than in the, in the U.S., but also with movements in places like uh, Scandinavia and, and Rene Recipe's restaurant Noma in um, Copenhagen in Denmark. And, you know, everybody started to do it, and that has sort of been looking at how do you develop things, are these foods more natural because they're sort of, you know, being digested in a better way. So there are all these sort of movements, and they do cross over, in a, actually in a very interesting way, into lots of different types of cuisine. So, so uh, veganism and being a vegetarian can be Indian. There are lots of uh, Buddhist cookings in all the Asian countries, uh, which is purely vegetarian. Um, the uh, sustainability, another area that sort of, um, oh, what's it called? Um, you know, these old grains like, um, you know, old wheat varieties and things like that and breads and things like that, all of those things, like einkorn and things. There's a lot of old varieties, heritage varieties of apples and things. It's all still growing. I think it's still there. And, it, again, it's a cross-cultural. I would say in, uh, here that there is also a tremendous sense of freedom. That at the moment, if you go into restaurants, any restaurant practically, unless it's a sort of a classic French, well, even there you'll get things like yuzu, um, there's a freedom to experiment. And by experimentation, it's like pulling things from different cultures. So here there's quite a lot of references to Japanese things, um, to uh, lots to Indian, but that's partly because of our heritage. 
um, also Chinese, Middle Eastern. So, for example, there's Yotam Ottolini had lots of restaurants, and one of his restaurants, Rovi, which is dominated by sort of um, vegetables more than meats and fish. But he, so he's got like miso fudge and vanilla salt as one, you know, which is now quite common here. But sort of five years ago, you wouldn't have seen probably. Or you might have einkorn roti, you know, with uh, uh, a curry and coconut, you know. So, uh, and yet it's actually sort of influenced more by the Middle East than, you know, either Japan or uh, um, elsewhere, currently mm-hmm. India. Yeah, so how does pulling from pulling ingredients from all these different cuisines to enrich one's own cooking not only make one's own cooking much more interesting, but also provide greater insight um, as to these other how these other cultures and cuisines um, kind of have come to exist or, yeah. They, they do. I think they really do. And I think that, I mean, one of the fun things about really sort of experimenting and learning about other cuisines is that you do, first of all, you discover new ingredients and you discover new techniques and you discover different ways of eating. And all of these things can then be drawn in and classic example of that is like with uh, stir fries and Chinese food because, you know, in, in the UK, the idea of having a, a stir fry in the 70s would have been extraordinary. <laughs> and then suddenly everybody thought, oh, this is a really great way to make supper. And, uh, and there are probably some abominations out there as well, but it actually made people cut vegetables in a different way, think about what they were cutting with the combinations, the colours, what did they look like, what did they taste like, and they were really quick and easy to do. And so it was exciting to eat, it looked beautiful, and it was quick to make. So, so there are lots, I think there are lots of different ways that you, you pull, in, pull into things, you know, that find exciting. And again, ingredients as well, you know, we didn't used to have fresh cilantro here uh, until sort of the late 80s, probably. You know, now it's, you'd be amazed if you couldn't get cilantro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and, and things like zucchini, you know, actually, you know, when my mother, my father was appalled and my mother grew some, you know, what he considered baby marrow and served them with garlic. I was like, my God, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, it's just absolutely, you know, standard. So it's just fascinating. And that was, of course, Italian immigrants going to the States, um, starting to grow them. And that's how zucchini became popular. It wasn't actually from Italy. It was from America. Mm-hmm. So all sorts of fascinating areas, ways of food and travels and what happens to it. Yeah, so the modern cook is really good at tasting, or I guess maybe more adventurous with new tastes and new cuisines and then adopting, um, making those techniques their own at home. And so how can food be wielded to construct our own culinary identities and how, I guess, um, how are our culinary identities manifested with our new skills? Well, I think, um, I think the, the, the thing is to be true to yourself. So first of all, you have to decide who you are. So just as like what clothes you wear, you have to think, well, you know, uh, who am I, what food do I like to eat? Who am I, how do I express myself when I'm eating? And so if, for example, you're someone who feels very adventurous, then obviously, uh, and, and you know, you, you love doing all sorts of different things, then, then you can really express that by uh, being quite wacky in terms of what you want to do. But the first thing is to actually understand how the techniques work and how they make you react. And so that is going back to the basics of feeling the senses and seeing how you respond to them, how you respond to the look, to the color, 
to the texture in your mouth, to the temperatures, you know, whether you want lots of dishes together or, or separately, etc. And what and how you're eating as well, because, you know, part of your statement is how you're actually eating. So, you know, if you're what you eat in front of the telly might be completely different from what you might give to friends, but nevertheless, it's still an expression of who you are, and it's you are reflecting to yourself who you are when you eat. But it's got to be things that you enjoy, you know, because food is about life. It's about enjoyment and, and being alive. It's living in the moment. And uh, so I think if the more you can understand other people and the way people use food, the more you can also really integrate it into your own interpretation. Even if you're really, really conservative. So, for example, you might be a very, very traditional cook and you like very simple pies and, uh, you know, roasts and things like that and stews. But actually, you might find that you change how you do your vegetables. You know, you might suddenly say, well, actually, instead of just, I mean, in the UK, it used to be always boiled vegetables uh, or steamed or whatever. And, and you might suddenly say, well, actually, you know, I love, you know, stir-fried cabbage. It tastes amazing. It's much sweeter. I'll have that. Or you might say, well, you know, actually, Brussels sprouts taste really interesting mashed. You know, uh, I never thought of doing that before. And... Um, so there's sort of weird things that you can sort of start to bring in, and wh- whoever you are, whatever type of food you like to eat, mm-hmm. it's yeah. fun. It's fun. <laughs> and to end, um, looking to the future, how has the trend of posting your food online or talking about your food online kind of changed how we also talk to ourselves about what we like and what we choose to eat? I find this, I think this is, in a way, the hardest question you've asked me because I'm not an online person. Um, in terms of looking at food. Um, I have mixed feelings about food being posted online because I think that a lot of it is about the look and not about what it actually is. And I I want people to live in the moment. And there's something slightly abstract about looking at something and not really doing it yourself. If you go away and cook it and it looks like that, that's great. But I think often it probably doesn't. I don't know. And I think also that there has been a great trend to, uh, you know, when you want to make things attractive, you make them more colourful. But, like, actually, you know, really dark, moody casseroles and stews and things are just as good and delicious, but they don't look particularly great, you know, uh, if you were to take a picture of them. I mean, I expect somebody will set up an Instagram site to challenge you now, but <laughs> it's... I think... I. I want people to live now. I don't want them to be looking at something else. I want them to be, to do it themselves, to feel themselves. And so you may find it inspiring, but don't think that's it. It isn't. <laughs> I was actually so, just about to say that's a very inspiring way of ending our episode, but we, <laughs> maybe we should just take that as an everyday uh, mantra or something. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so I know there are wonderful blogs out there and everything in Instagram. <laughs> I'll probably get depressed. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sybil. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.